Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. With me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. Welcome, Cynthia. Hey, Josh. Um, How's it going? It's going well. Summer is alive and well here in the Pacific Northwest. We're just going to skip through spring. It's like 90 here, which is ridiculous. I'm not used to it. My lily white skin is burning. Uh, but I'm happy. I mean, I get Speaking to Speaking of, yeah, I got really badly sunburned. I, I had the sunblock on and I was out in the water in the Chesapeake, which I love being out nice. in the water. Um, but I feel like the ozone layer is getting weaker and weaker because I'm having to slather on right. like SPF a hundred multiple times. <laughs> nice. Well, if you're new to the show, welcome. Every week we bring in these amazing guests who have one extra thing on their resume and that is service to our country. And this week is no exception. We have an amazing guest from Leashes of Valor, Danique Massengill. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really, really excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, we've been really thrilled. I've, I've checked out your website. I'm a dog person a dog lover. So this is right up my alley. Um, but first and foremost, we really want to just hear the story of you. So let's rewind the tape. You joined the Navy. Yay. I'm a Navy vet. Uh, so I'm always excited to talk to other Navy folks. But what prompted, why the Navy? What what prompted you to go in? Um, so I'm a post 9-11 joiner. And Really, I wanted law enforcement, and the Navy was the only one that actually promised that in my contract. Nice. So when it came down to to any hard feelings on any branch, it was really just what what were they going to deliver for me? And law enforcement was um, the name of the game. So I joined in 2002, went to boot camp, and uh, my first command was Weapon Station Charleston out of South Carolina. That's when we still had some of the special guests that then resided in Guantanamo, Cuba. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so it was interesting for stateside, and it was a really, really shitty command um, from sexual assaults personally mm. to being a law enforcement officer and witnessing, you know, rampant suicide already back oh, then. Man. Uh, I can just imagine. So, yeah, that's it's a difficult place for you to be because you're here supposed to be providing safety, right? Safety and response, and yet you're the one in need of it. Tell me a bit about, I mean... Let's unwind a little bit and unpack this because I think we're ending um, May heading into June. We had Mental Health Awareness Month last month, but we didn't really talk about it too much. And I feel like, you know, within the veteran community, we know it exists. We talk about preventing veteran suicide, but we don't talk about surviving trauma. And, uh, you know, I went through it and I, I talk about it openly just because it needs to be talked about. But how, wh- wh- at what point did you realize that you came to a crisis of your own um, journey serving because you didn't get protection for yourself? Um, so honestly, mine was really convoluted. A, I was in law enforcement and a lot of the perpetrators, plural, mm-hmm. um, were leadership in law enforcement. So that kind of already negates the whole, who do you call? Um, you know, where, who do you report to when law enforcement is the ones um, actually doing this? So I, I was first assaulted in the barracks by um, a Marine and I tried to report it. 
And that's when I was first confronted with the reality of um, mission over people. Mm-hmm. So the other person was in a critical role on that base. And they said, they, basically, we need to make this go away because there's a war happening. And what he's doing is more important than, I guess. They said they that we need to make this go away. Oh, my God. How did that make you feel? Um, I mean, you're probably young at the time, right? When How old were you when you joined? So I was actually 22 at this point. So I was wow. a late joiner. I yeah. finished... Um, finished, you know, first round of college, basically. And then 9-11 kind of gave me that purpose that I didn't find in college. Sure. So 22 years old, and um, I'm confronted with, I guess, the the processes and rules that I think I'm enforcing aren't real, you know, for, you know, the the priority of, of humans and the justice system was, I guess, the first awakening. And then there were other instances with my own leadership, which our fellow law enforcement people in um, leadership roles to me. So it was the entire entire senior enlisted in my chain of command. So that's basically up to the police chief. So I had nowhere to go and no one to report to, um, which caused a lot of mental health issues, um, self-medicating. So there was a rampant alcohol issue going on. And if you look at the timeline on when you should and shouldn't be arming up and all of those things, it's definitely concerning how we allow people to fall apart um, while expecting him to still do a good job, honestly. So I was probably also not the most ideal role model or leadership example. Um, I excelled on paper and then I got NCIS orders and that was hopefully my ticket out of there. So mm-hmm. I left, um, Charleston three years, huge mental health decline. So I was medicating, um, physically, I had a lot of knee surgeries already and, um, weight gain. So all of the, like, things that basically make you more and more of a shitbag almost is what I want to call it. Like from the outside is because something's eating you from the inside. Yeah. So I go self, to, it's go a self-protective ahead. mechanism. You know, I, I, I didn't realize until much later uh, dealing with eating disorders and, and same thing, self-medication, uh, functional, <laughs> functional alcoholism, like for by all intents and purposes, everybody in the military was drunk by the time you're it's Friday night. So it was accepted, but, I knew there was not, you know, something not right until later that I went to therapy for myself and I had to do it outside of the unit. I had to do it outside of the VA. Um, and thank God I was able to get some help, but you know, I didn't realize that, uh, women who are, well, anybody, men and women who are sexually assaulted tend to have eating issues because it's a self-protective mechanism and it's your self-medicating. Um, But yeah, this at the time, I'm reminding folks that are listening, that whole sharp reporting um, command was different because you had to report that to your own chain of command instead of going to a neutral party, which I think they tried to establish in the last several years. Um, But yeah, I was in during the time where it goes to the perpetrator's chain of command, it goes to your chain of command, everybody knows about it. So it's not protected, it's not anonymous. Um, and so it, it prevents people from wanting to speak up and report. Yeah. So on my, on my exit strategy of, um, of leaving Charleston, I had, um, I had finally gone to the command master chief, which is the command E9 Mm -hmm. over all of the other ones, because one of the assaulters was my E9. And I basically had voicemails as proof and I was told okay um you don't mess with the chief's mess and they were deleted in front of me and then I just had a phone muster for the last three months 
but I got any and all paperwork I needed just to quietly go away. So I got those NCIS orders to go to um, Protective Services School out of Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. So it was basically my golden ticket out of there after everything that had happened. Um, that wasn't a good command either. I was assaulted at the weapons range. So magically oh, yeah. I couldn't finish the weapons course because I was, yeah. So I failed the course and then left for new orders to the John F. Kennedy out of Mayport, Florida. And at that point they realized that I only had an overseas screening for my original orders and not a sea duty screening. So all of the injuries from sustained in Charleston started catching up with me, including chronic migraines, um, you know, and all of the other like mental health things that start showing up in physical manners. Mm -hmm. um, so I couldn't pass the CDD screening. So I had to leave the John F. Kennedy, which I was very fond of that command, actually, um, on my med board. And my last year, I I didn't want to hand out basketballs, is what, what we call it in the Navy, is when you get med board orders. So I asked to stay within my rate and asked to go to Mayport Security. And the local master chief took me, um, who was a fantastic dude. And then we got a new security officer. So my last year in the Navy, I was at another shitty command. Um, this guy was more notorious in general. So not like direct physically assaulting me, but uh, he would ask like the females to sweep under his desk. Um, he would have some of the girls basically breast pump in his office. Like he was disturbing. Hmm. Um, so we went through a couple of IG investigations with that guy. And Toward the end of the second med board, basically my chief medical officer said, I don't think you have much left in you. Uh, I think I should fail you based on like whatever I can magically come up with. But he knew I was at my wits end. So I failed my last med board and got out in 07. What's, what's three shooting really, commands. Yeah, what's really mind boggling to me is that the way to get you out of that situation was not to deal with the root problem or maybe because he thought, Hey, it's, it's, it's such a systemic and large root problem. I can't fix it. So the easiest and fastest way is to just fail her, which makes you look bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because it's, I've, I saw this with myself and my perpetrator was also an MP and uh, went through the whole, and I was married to an MP. And so it was like, Hey, how do I, where do I go for help? Who do I turn yeah. to? Who's going to advocate for me? Um, so it's, it's definitely a difficult situation for sure. I mean, tell me how you survived that and how you were able to kind of turn your life around. Um, so surviving, it's a really good question. I think it's really um, head down. And for a lot of it, I was not necessarily aware how I guess, bad or sustained some of the behavior was until you explain it to somebody else. You ever heard that quote? Like, you don't know how fucked up somebody treated you mm -hmm. until you try and articulate it. Um, so thankfully, I think I wasn't aware of really how fucked up it was. Um, it just built over time. So I think that was partially a saving grace. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was a lot of self-medicating, but trauma response for people is so different. So there's fight or flight or freeze or even befriend. I mean, you see people get Stockholmed. So mm -hmm. noticing behavior patterns after the fact, I realized that for a lot of it really just, I see people do perfectionism. 
where you basically become like a gray rock. Like if there's nothing that can be um, criticized, especially when people constantly try and pick on you to, you know, isolate you from the herd. So perfectionism was definitely um, a mechanism. So even having your hair up perfectly as a female in the military is a thing, have your uniform perfect, everything is studied for, you're never late. Those become obsessive patterns later on. So depending on what your PTSD or trauma is, um, I noticed later I had difficulty in um, power relationships. So college professors, if I had to go ask a professor for help, being in the vulnerable position of needing help from an authority position, um, that, you know, through years of therapy was able to be traced back to what happened in Fort Leonard on the range, like being in a power position with uh, an instructor type that has control over you passing or failing. Mm -hmm. So that fucked with me years later. Um, So it's basically undoing learned behavior that got you through it. So I don't know how I got through it, but now I'm learning to undo all the behaviors I, I created to, I guess, survive at the time. So it's, it's basically undoing a puzzle in a weird way. You're, you're, what I love about this is your, your willingness to share your story. So I appreciate you and I thank you. Is it part, is part of the sharing helping you not, uh, not really survive, but um, deal with it in a more pragmatic way? I mean, how therapeutic is it for you to, to share this or is it more altruistic? You, you really trying to help others who are, who might be going through the same thing? Um, It's probably more on the altruistic side and I will say it always depends on the interviewers too. Sure. Um, I very exclusively only go on veterans podcasts. So I think would I be this genuine on Fox, for example? Sure. No, because yeah. I'm not genuinely interested in like connecting, but I know that there's people listening to this that have even walked this walk from a leadership role, not even knowing why is this person constantly ostracized, not even knowing where to dig. You know, yeah. So I think it depends on the audience and the interviewers too on how open I am about it. Well, walking into it, I, we were talking about it ahead of time, and I, I don't know it, that wasn't my experience. So for me, it's hard to understand. And but I'm, I went in in '94 and got out in '97, and back then it was way different than it is today, or even when you were in. Now what? 10, 13 years ago, fourteen years ago, um. I think the interesting piece to it is there is an experience for men, there's an experience for women, there's an experience for trans people, there's different experiences, right? How the military looks at that uh, needs to happen from the top down, because it's not necessarily what's happening up in the Pentagon or in the upper echelons or in... in uh, say Norfolk or Bremerton or San Diego, right? Like those conversations might happen in a very small vacuum, but if it's not happening in in the Pentagon, it's not happening fleet wide. You know what I mean? So what would you say to those folks that are say in the Pentagon that have the power to make this a more prevalent discussion? Like what would your advice be? I mean, for starters, look around the room. Are the stakeholders actually even represented? It's if a it's a point. whole bunch of old white dudes sitting around, I'm sorry, but what do you know about my experience? 100%. So unless you have a little bit of the E5 mafia in there and a trans person or, you know, like you need the to shake the dice up a little bit to figure out, you know, the different opinions and stakeholders. And they're not doing that currently. So 
so frustrating. And I don't think they care. Well, it, and and it's um, these systems. It's not like these systems were put in place overnight. So I think it's going to take generations to undo the just toxic environment we've built within the system. But I think it's institutional. 100%. A lot of it is very um, bureaucratic. Like the the most expensive words in business are "this is how we've always done it," hmm. and you know that's in the military. That's why we're lacking innovation too, because we're all just constantly asking the same questions to the same people. And yeah. that's why we're inventing the same shit over and fighting old wars. We, again, don't have the right stakeholders in the room to get a full picture of world population, which is also the representation within your ranks. Yeah, and I think for sure yeah. when when there's issues happening that are getting people's attention nationwide, worldwide, right? When we talk about 22 suicides a day, we're not talking about the people who attempted. We're not talking about the people who continue to struggle. We're not talking about the millions who are on medication, self-medicated, who are trying to find purpose and value in their life. And, you know, from I was I spent 15 years as, as, as a crisis social worker, ironically enough, before I went through my own experience in the military. And we know for a fact that, that one in six civilians, one in six men are sexually assaulted. That number is even higher. It's uh, estimated to be one out of three men hmm. and pretty much one out of four women in the civilian sector and one, half, at least half or more um, of women in military service. We don't talk about that. Great. So uh, imagine, you know, if somebody's coming forward, how hard is it for a male to, to be battling this masculinity to be like, oh, we can't talk about it. I can't show weakness. Um, how hard is it to get help? And I, I really feel like this is kind of pivotal. Your story is pivotal to not only who you are as a person, your own journey, your own recovery, but to the other people that you intersect your life intersects other people and including your business yeah. um so tell me a little bit about that change that happened in you as you're as you're recovering for yourself and like how did you get involved with this concept of leashes of valor um wow that's that's a lot of questions um yeah. how did i get involved with leashes of valor i think kind of brings the story together so i leave the military and i have like my first midlife crisis of what am i going to do now I, I left without benefits. So I even have an administrative discharge with medical condition, not warranting disability. That's what it says. Mm. Um, so I had to go to the VA and like do all of the things. So it is 2007 having to fight for disability. Nobody's talking about PTSD and nobody's talking about MST. So I don't know that even exists. Like I have no idea that I have these things. I just thought I had really fucked up leadership and it just really sucked. Um, so my reality check didn't come until several years later. I go to cosmetology school for my midlife crisis um, because it turns out to be a very safe environment if you think about it, going from a very male masculine um, industry that didn't serve me well. I went to the super opposite direction, but it turns out I have no personality for that. So that was a really poor choice for Vogue Rehab to even send me there. Hmm. Um, so fast forward to like 2010, I'm an unemployed military spouse who's a hairdresser who can't find a job. So I go back to Vogue Rehab. What do I do? I can't find a job. My husband's deployed. And she told me, she says, like, you would still have GI Bill benefits left. Go back to school. So she told me, go to Syracuse. I'm like, what's Syracuse University? Never heard of it before. <laughs> So I had to start at the bottom, like the night school, university college, because I had a really crappy GPA. Um, but thankfully, they had 
like really strong um, veterans program already at the time. And professors like sought me out and said, you are, I started losing my shit at the time. So MST and PTSD comes right back into the story Mm -hmm. here. The stressors of all of this and being in that power relationship situation with professors all the time started messing with my mental health. And I started getting triggered a lot. And professors noticed that I'm like losing my shit, crying in office meetings, like can't handle myself. And they kept saying, go be with your people, like go to this veterans lounge. And I didn't want anything to do with it, like resistant for about two years. And then I ended up going and it was probably the best thing I could have ever done. Um, Met a a Marine there who like the first day I went in the office was just, I guess, just the right kind of just grumpy, cathartic person I needed to meet. Um, But super non-threatening and just nice and just this older dysfunctional person trying to figure out college life. So that was the beginning of, I met another girl that was getting a service dog. And I'm like, what do you mean dogs working for veterans? Cause I only knew it from military working dogs. Mm-hmm. And she went and got a service dog at an organization. I told my husband, you should go get a service dog as well. He had just retired from the military. And I started researching it a lot more. And I decided I'm gonna drop my, um, I was supposed to go to school for library and information science, thanks to Boke Rehab again. Again, not a field I should have been in. I changed my degree field and wanted to do service dog policy and work in the veteran space specifically. So I threw everything else out the window and went balls to the wall toward that degree field. And again, the university humored me and allowed me to write almost in every class specifically on something regarding working dogs, veterans mental health, or something to do with the industry as a whole. So I continuously just got to write and research things I was interested in, which definitely helped. and I got hired right got got hired right out of college at an organization in Florida, um, and started helping them develop programs as they grew. And really, just have been in the service dog space ever since. Left that organization to go to a DC job, work more on the policy side of things. And then our entire founding team, my husband, um, our CEO Jason, myself, all worked at these organizations together. And then decided um, we want to do more grassroots. So the peer-to-peer aspect um, and more control over the quality of the end product. And that's really how Leashes of Valor was founded in 2017. And we've been doing that ever since. Uh, there's a lot of parallels here because I went yeah. to Syracuse University. Oh my God. Uh, for grad school. And my daughter just graduated from SU last week. She had Congrats. a Thanks. And so it's you're telling the story, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's talking about me. Because my first year in grad school, I was in a very male-dominated field for photojournalism. The School of Military Visual Journalism is there. You know, IVMF is there. Mm -hmm. And I remember just breaking down, breaking down and crying and just not fitting in. And they're like, you know, you're technically, you're getting an A because you're technically proficient, but your concept sucks. And, you know, don't ever tell people you came here to the new house. Like you are not v- worthy of being a new house student. I remember a professor told me that and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, what is my purpose in life? And I'm transitioning out, you know, I'm getting, going through my med board in the air force. And I, I knew I was gonna, about to go through a divorce and I had three little kids and I went begrudgingly to the veterans lounge. <laughs> and I met a, a female veteran there from the air force. And something she said to me was you're 
you have a lot of control, even though you don't think you have a lot of control. And you have a lot of choices ahead of you that you can say no to. And I remember her saying that was like a light bulb in my head. Like, what do you mean I have control? I have no control. Like, what do you mean I can say no? I can't say no. Like all my life, like, especially when you're in the military, you don't get to choose what you wear, what you eat, how to stand when you show up. Like you, you feel like you're out of control over a lot of things. And I was spinning. I literally was spinning out of control and I, you can't do something artistic and you can't produce if your head is not even clear and you hate yourself. But the best thing I ever did was I took a leave of absence. Um, I finished off my service, got out, and I completely changed my major. I changed to documentary film and history production, which is part of Newhouse, part of Maxwell. And the professors that I had at that time, I think they knew more than they were willing to tell me, but they literally said, we want you to dictate what your end product is going to be. And I did a documentary on PTSD. And that was my healing journey. That was the beginning of my healing journey in 2014. And I had no idea what I was about to step into and how I was going to change as an individual. So I, I really feel a lot of parallels here between your recovery and my recovery and like finding yourself and figuring out that you do have something that you can give to other people. And it's just completely eye opening. Wow, that's um. I had left right spring of 2014 is when I graduated. So that's okay. Wow. That's well, I bet we were on campus at the same time. We just didn't even totally. know. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. Yeah, Syracuse was definitely um. I lo- I loved going there. Like I really loved going to school. I almost stayed, and I almost went back once for a PhD. So I'm I'm still kind of nerdily tied to that place. <laughs> and I think they definitely help with innovation and looking how they allowed you to write or do exactly what you wanted to. And same with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally still work in the exact same space on what I wrote my thesis on. Like it has allowed me tremendously to just have my platform, um, which, you know, if they would have stunted my growth there and said, no, you need to go to library and information science, I'd be working in an archive somewhere. So mm-hmm. Usually in the show, this is where we go. What did you learn in your military career that helped you in your entrepreneurial journey? Right? Um, I'm pretty sure we can answer that. But what do you think um, you've learned along as an entrepreneur, just broad stroke? Like, what have you learned about this process of creating something from nothing and building it uh, using, as you said, a platform uh, not only to help yourself, but uh, to to help the broader space of veterans who need help. I think learning how to literally use the veterans network. Um, I mean, this literally wasn't built alone or by myself, nor is it done by myself. So even though I'm the, the puppet on the show, it's really so many different people I've reached out to throughout like the different organizations I've worked at. And um, as I'm building this, a lot of our donors and the original seed money to, to mentorship, to uh, people that run parallel organizations. Um, it's really been that peer to peer support and um, cross pollination of just knowledge and information. Um, I think that really made it for me, like really as a veteran entrepreneur, it has been going to different events, meeting different veterans and, and crowdsourcing knowledge. If I don't know it, I find somebody who does. And that's been phenomenal for me. It's amazing. Um, talk a little bit about the process for you in this business. How do you source dogs 
where do they go for training, how do veterans apply for a dog? Walk through that that uh, that process. I mean, you're almost building a two-sided market. Without the vets, you don't have the dogs. Without the dogs, you don't have the vets. Like, how do you marry the two? Yeah, I mean, I do I do compare it to Match.com, so it's like a doggy <laughs> dating service. Because um, you spend a tremendous amount of time with a service animal, more than your spouse or anybody else. So it has to be extremely compatible to your lifestyle. Um so we're a 16-day residential program, meaning the dog is trained before the person actually ever meets that dog. The dog has learned everything they need to know. So the warrior really only comes through the program to learn how to use their new prosthetic on four legs. Um, we source the dogs partially from a breeder who's another veteran that donates them to organizations like ours and partially through rescue dogs, um, owner surrender shelters. And then they're thankfully fostered by a lot of generous people in the community that do a lot of the puppy raising for us because I do not have the patience for that. We have a puppy now and I don't have any patience for that stupid thing right now. So I feel (laughs) you. And then our trainers, basically, it's like um, teaching the grandparents slash the fosters on how to keep the bumpers on the behavior. And then the trainers kind of finesse all of those things. And then through the match.com slash application, which you fill out, which is a very lengthy 19 page product. Um, I know from what your career is to what your lifestyle is like, to what your disabilities are from dexterity to, to motor skills, all of those. And then the dog is custom trained to your specific triggers is what we call them, meaning your tells. Some people do the playing with their wedding band, twirling their hair, stroking your beard. Those are all early telltale signs. And we train the dog to interrupt that behavior, which is also an onset of anxiety issues usually, as well as nightmare interruption and a few other things. Then the veteran comes for the 16-day program. They meet their dog, and those days are spent taking you out in public and basically the train as you fight. We dry run everything like you would in real life. So if you have kids that go to lacrosse games, we're going to a kid's park where they're all screaming and running around so that you know how to manage your dog in your lifestyle situations so that when you go home, you've already had dry runs and you're not trying to manage your three kids and your new dog all at the same time, which is not helpful for um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the program in a very abbreviated nutshell. It's amazing. How, how long do the applicants need to stay in your area where you're training the dog for that um, period of time before they go home? They, they really only are there for 16 days. So some okay. service dog programs pair you and then you have to be within the region for like nine months or something to continue training. We front load all of that with the fosters. So because I have people that like these are professionals, they like they have careers and families, they cannot leave for lengthy periods of time to actually do this. Mm-hmm. So this is all already done for them. That 10 to 16 day window, they stay on property. Everything is covered for them while they're here but that is really the crash course to make you a mini dog handler. Is there a specific breed that you prefer over another that would be, um, I guess, better trained or easy, easier to work with? Or do you accept all breeds of dogs? Uh, very generically speaking, we call it a potato with an appetite. I want low <laughs> speed and I want you to be food motivated. Um, other than that, you know, there's a little height weight proportion um, because you have to think of travel um, also the really tiny Yorkie poos with a, you know, very large Marines, probably not going to work very well. So there's a few other criteria, but in general, 
a potato that's that's motivated is the ideal service dog candidate. If, they, if and, they can be trained that way, that's perfect. That's right. Are there candidates? Are there people that you screen out? Like that you could say, well, you know, this might not be for you. Yes. Um, so aside from anything, obviously with anger management and extreme self-medicating. So if you have to basically get high, abuse medication or drink yourself to sleep every night, you're not going to be doing that during the 10 day program, but I'm also not having you detox here. So the dog can't get a good read on somebody who self-medicates to that level. Mm -hmm. So you have to be sober already when you come through the program. So that would be a no. Uh, anger management issues, domestic violence, anything recent that shows you can't manage your shit, basically. I'm not going to trust you with another creature that you can let your shit out on. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, certain careers, honestly, if you're an underwater welder, like where's your dog going to go? Um, so you really have to have to be realistic on what your career choices are going to be after you get out of the service. If a service dog is even an ideal candidate for your, for your lifestyle, um, because some employers can't give you that like it's a liability it's just not feasible if you're a crane operator to necessarily have a dog in some of this machinery yeah um and some of the other things is if you have too many other animals in the home so people that have a tendency to start hoarding animals and lubbies and things um or chaotic lifestyle you have you know your kids and your grandkids and your cousin's grandkids living with you it is very hard for a dog to focus in that kind of chaotic environment and there's also a lot of other emotions going on they can't alert um, so those are some of the bigger ones. And, you know, some things filter out as you get to know them. It's amazing. Um, we ask this with every guest, but what is it that you think you have fucked up along your entrepreneurial journey that was so big and profound that it could have completely scuttled everything you've worked for? And I know as entrepreneurs, we fuck up a lot, but there's always that one turning point where you're like, shit, we really screwed that up. That could have fucked everything up. I mean, for us, obviously, the health of a dog or an entire litter, um, you know, we have to plan like two or three years ahead when we take these dogs. Oh, wow. So, God forbid I lost an entire like seven or eight dogs out of my batch for health reasons or something. Um, That'd be detrimental. Hiring, I think for us is because we're so small, like everybody's very much expected to wear multiple hats. Um, so on our, you know, on our PR side, I, I made a bad hire and we lost a lot of content a year's worth. Oh, so man. I think that's one of the biggest ones for, for us. I would imagine it'd be hard to find the right person, the right staff member, because you got to have that empathy. You have to have the patience and you have to have the know-how on working with that type of breed or, you know, one dog might be a little bit harder to train just because of their personality and then on top of that, training people, <laughs> training training the, the future owners to work with their service dog. Yes, and you're you're training people that also have mental health issues. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's um, you know, you're straddling a do- lot of different industries, and you kind of need to be a baby expert on a whole bunch of things. Um, I think what's worse is that it's such a tremendous responsibility. I think that's the thing that people don't. I think realize as much for us and what keeps us up at night is the responsibility over training the right dog for the right person. Because if they think that that's their last hope, um, you know, they're putting a lot of things on you. So, and because it's a peer to peer, like we feel this personally and we want everybody to succeed. So it's hard to say no to people 
Um, and it's, it's hard to have that responsibility over giving somebody else a very important tool. So, yeah, yeah I was going to say, do you have any, um, success stories that stand out in your mind from a really great match? Uh, I mean, they're all obnoxiously bragging, uh, on social media <laughs> against each other lately. So I almost don't want to give any of them credit right now. They're doing so fantastic. Um, I think they all very much surprise me on their resilience even when other shit comes at them like when i think really this person can't handle another blow and sometimes they really do get another one and man do they know how to get back up and that's because they've learned how to use their tool so i think like not giving them a whoopee or a blankie you know like i didn't give them just something cute i gave them a tool and actually seeing them use it when shit hits the fan Mm -hmm. when you know like they come to emotional crossroads and they went on the right path Uh, I think that's the most powerful stuff. And I mean, I've had warriors that graduated our program and their parent died the week after. Uh, So they're going directly from picking up a service dog to a memorial. Hmm. Um, Like there's, you know, did they just weather storms at home with children with illness? Um, There's just so many other things coming at them that we all know their emotional bandwidth is already very limited. So to, to take that punch and know how to use your tool, I think is the most tremendous thing. It just but. speaks to volumes about the impact that animals that you bring into your home, how much impact it can have on your well-being and your health and your, you know, just recovering from crap that you've gone through. Um, did, did you think that it was going to have that much impact going into this? Naively, no. Um like, I mean, working at service dog organizations beforehand and being directly always connected with the veterans because sure. that was my original role. I mean, I always already saw the impact, but I think seeing seeing you have to shape the entire identity of an organization and then take veterans through the program and they take on that responsibility of your brand and they want to pay it forward. Like I see them mentor each other. I think that's one of the biggest wins is that they they care for each other and almost took that off our plate. Like we have veterans applying. Yeah. That know somebody that went through and that person's coaching them. So we don't have to, and they kind of mentor them all the way, through, you know, soup to nuts through graduation. So the fact that they have their own new community of people that are like them, you know, that have a dog from the same group so they can all talk shit and inside jokes, but it's, it's a thing. It's just like our unit was a thing back in the day. Yeah. So I think that's cool to see. Yeah. You, you have such a remarkable story. Um, if you could go back and give your younger self advice, what advice would you give your younger self? No grit, no pearl. I don't know. I think, you know, everything shitty still teaches a lesson. So I think you just got to learn how to stick with it. And I thankfully did. So I guess if I could give my younger self that advice is to make sure you fucking stick with it. Cause there were days I didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you see leashes of valor going in the next say five to 10 years? Where do you hope it, it ends up? <laughs> Um, yeah, growth is painful. So it's kind of scary. Uh, we've grown tremendously just over the last year already. Yeah. So while I see everything super positive and going towards something bigger, uh, I hope it doesn't go too big. I think we need to go more parallel and, um, like what we call the whole health picture. Yeah. But yeah, slow growth is what I want to see in the next five years. I love it. Sustained growth. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love it. Where can people find you guys online? Well, on all the socials under Leashes of Valor and leashesofvalor.org, um, 
just on the regular internet machine. Danique, uh, I'm so glad we did this. And uh, you're always welcome to come back. We, we, we should be doing more shows about, you know, bringing awareness, talking about mental health, talking about things that are important that others aren't talking about. And we'd love to have you anytime to do that. Absolutely. Anytime. It was so much fun talking to you guys. Really appreciate it. And thanks for peeling the onion. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Cynthia, well, thank you so much for also being part of the discussion. And uh, I agree. We got to do this more often. We do. And thank you for being part of the show. Yeah, for sure. Keep keep in touch and let us know how the business is doing and how you're doing. Yeah, I definitely see this business is linked with your own character with your recovery with your journey and so um you know our identities are are inextricably linked with everything we do you know and i i really see you paying it forward and you're touching so many lives so um please feel free to share with us some of these stories these matches and photos and stuff so well do everybody loves photos of dogs <laughs> yes All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, You can listen to us every week on StartupRadioNetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, learn, get shit done. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.